Welcome to the South Elkhorn Christian Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the weekly messages. For bulletin material, reflection guides, and other resources, visit southelkhorncc.org. The Exodus story continues. But the passage we're about to read is often left out. It's skipped, dropped, dare I say, avoided. By whom? The lectionary. Now, you might not know what the lectionary is, but if you've been to church, you've likely been impacted by it. It's a collection of Bible readings that follow a three-year cycle, with each Sunday of the year having four assigned readings. The lectionary was created over the years by committees of pastors, scholars, and church folk, and many churches follow it, selecting one or multiple readings from the lectionary each week. And for the most part, what they came up with is helpful. It's good. The stories of scripture focus on a gospel for the year and are coordinated with festivals and holy days like Advent, Christmas, Easter, Pentecost. I mean, I mean, imagine reading the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree on Easter. It's a good story, an important story, but uh, not for Easter. We need an empty tomb story, a resurrection story. And the lectionary has it. Thanks, lectionary. The problem, of course, is that not every story and not every important story fits into this three-year cycle like, like the one we're about to read. You see, there's just too much scripture. And not only that, scripture is filled with, well, how do I say this? Unsavory passages, disturbing details, and confusing characters that sometimes, maybe most times, it's just easier to leave out like the passage we're about to read. I liken the lectionary to the interstate. It's a four-lane expressway through scripture that gets you somewhere you need to go conveniently and gives you some important views along the way. Of course, to do this, the lectionary interstate blasts through the hills of some of the trickier challenges, and it also entirely avoids the highest peaks and deepest valleys. So if you've you've never heard this part of the Moses story, or if, if you've never really read this passage in Exodus, it's okay. You're likely not alone. This isn't a pit stop on the lectionary interstate. It's, it's more of an off-road excursion into the scriptural backcountry. The terrain is rough and challenging, like a ridgeline peak that is hard to get to. But if you're willing to make the trek, it offers you a view of the countryside that just might blow your mind and change your world. So let's read from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But but some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses, Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Reuel, he said, how is, it, how is it that you have come back so soon today? They said, an Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him to break bread. 
Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Moses got himself into trouble. But it's not the kind of trouble that comes from just being an imperfect person leading an imperfect life, which he was and we all are. No, Moses got himself into what the recently deceased John Lewis called good trouble, necessary trouble. This is a story about making choices. We always have choices, and sometimes those choices will get us into trouble. Moses chose the trouble of losing himself, of emptying himself of a future that nobility could afford and palace privilege would secure. Moses chose the trouble of losing himself for others. And, and Jesus reminds us in the Gospels that losing one's self can also mean the opportunity to gain a new, more free, more blessed, and more beautiful life and perhaps change the world. Moses was born, in a, was born a Hebrew in hostile Egypt. He was born into enslaved conditions and Pharaoh's cruel, fear-driven death decree. Yet Moses survives on the creativity and courage of women who defy this decree, who could have gotten into some trouble, who did get into a bit of trouble, including Pharaoh's own daughter, the princess, who, who adopts Moses into the Egyptian court, a, a Hebrew child. We don't know what happens in the young years of Moses' life. We only know that he grows up, nursed by his mother. And we're wondering, who does Moses become? Will he be a Hebrew? Isn't he Egyptian? Well, yes. Like most of us, Moses has a complicated identity. Moses is at once the product of privilege in the palace of the Pharaoh and also a child of the oppressed on whose backs that privilege was extracted. He's a both and kind of guy. And Moses has choices. We have choices. It's just the choices aren't always easy and they will always cost us something. What Moses chooses and the trouble he gets into is what this passage is all about. So when grown-up Moses finally steps onto the scriptural stage, no longer tossed about by the Nile waters or the creativity of other people's courage, we're left to wonder, what will Moses choose? Who will he become? And that question intensifies as we read the opening lines that Moses went out that fateful day to see his people. Who, who are his people? Are they the Egyptians he played with and grew up with and grew up with? The taskmasters and middle managers doing their nine to five so that they can provide a comfortable and enjoyable living for their families? Or, or are his people the ones enslaved and exploited, toiling for next to no pay, working long hours, exhausted, abused, neglected, dismissed, and in a flash? We know what Moses chooses. We know who Moses chooses, made crystal clear in how Moses chooses to see. We read that Moses sees the forced labor of his people. Despite his place in the palace, he sees the bondage, the backbreaking injustice. He sees the Hebrew people. Now, this is important. Moses didn't have to see what he saw. We never do. Seeing is something, isn't something that just happens. We see what we look for, which is why Jesus declares, but those who have eyes to see, let them see. 
Again, we always have choices and we choose lenses each morning that help us see certain things and in seeing certain things help us become certain people. With different lenses, Moses could have seen the same activity of people toiling away in the dirt and mud and and he could have landed on a very different conclusion. He could have seen, well, just the unfortunate way the world is for these poor souls and and nothing he had any power to change. He he could have seen lazy, good-for-nothing lowlives, better left to their just desserts. He could have internalized Pharaoh's racist ideas and seen the world through them, seeing seeing those in forced labor as, as merely animals. Moses could have seen himself as the rare, dignified exception to those Hebrew animals, proving the rule that Hebrews are generally no good for anything but the confining labor they endure. He could have looked past the people and their suffering, seeing that this economic labor was contributing to Egypt's national security, which which kept Moses safe in the palace. So he could have have seen the the back-breaking work with, with simple gratitude. He could have just been grateful for the blessings they provided. He could have seen, he could have seen ungrateful complainers who didn't do anything to really improve their own lot in life. I mean, just look at me, Moses could have said. See, not everyone born into such conditions must become a slave. But what does Moses see? Not that. The lenses he chooses that day as he walks into the hot Egyptian sun are lenses of compassion and justice. Lenses that notice suffering, especially unjust suffering. Moses notices how carefully crafted conditions create this suffering. This is no accident of history he's observing. This is the product of policy. He sees forced labor. And the lenses Moses chooses, the kind of seeing, is something that will return. It will return in the very next passage in the Exodus story, in that famous moment we might remember when from the burning bush, God declares, I too have seen the misery of my people. God has chosen lenses to see with too. I wonder... I wonder if Moses choosing the lenses of compassion and justice, seeing people and the world with those lenses, I wonder if that is what it takes to really notice and embrace something as bewildering and beautiful and sacred as a burning bush. We see what we look for. And I don't think it's any accident that Moses seeing the unjust suffering of the Hebrew people comes before Moses sees the unparalleled mystery of God's blazing splendor. It's easy to romanticize the burning bush moment without the crucible and context of this passage and this part of the story. Moses chooses to see. And with those lenses, Moses will see again and again and again. Three more scenes of seeing are in this passage we read. Seeing that gets Moses into trouble. First, Moses sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. Sadly, our translation doesn't do justice to the verb used here. The word we read as beating is actually the same word that describes what Moses does back to the Egyptian. The Egyptian isn't just beating the Hebrew. The Egyptian is killing the Hebrew. And before he can finish, Moses chooses to step in and make a great reversal. Now, this is a brutal story, so no wonder it's left out of the lectionary. Still, it's important that we get a picture of what's going on. Moses sees unjust suffering and brutality 
and doesn't pass by. He steps in. The results are predictably tragic, as is so often the case in a world built by brutality and violence, yet, yet it forecasts what is to come. A God who chooses not to move on, but get involved, to bring about a great reversal, and a God who will leverage the leadership of people who choose to see and who get into trouble. So Moses chooses to see again. This time, what he sees is enslaved people taking out their pain, suffering, and aggression on each other. With with different lenses, Moses could have seen this as further proof that Hebrews are just broken, violent people, maybe even deserving of the harsh treatment they receive at the hands of the Egyptians. Only violence can keep these animals in check, right? And, And with different lenses, Moses could have wondered himself why he should even trouble, trouble himself with the plight of the Hebrew people anyway. I mean... What about Hebrew on Hebrew violence? Why isn't anyone talking about that? Here it is for all to see, and yet the Hebrews, all they want to do is complain about their oppression instead of cleaning up their own lives. But Moses sees with the lenses of compassion and justice. He knows that under the unjust oppression of the Pharaoh, living in segregated work communities apart from the Egyptians, with barely enough to eat and so little hope that fighting would break out between them, That frustration and fury would turn inward and fracture them. That was all part of Pharaoh's policy to begin with. Destroy the political threat of the Hebrews. Don't let them have the energy or goodwill to work together. Turn them against each other. Moses chooses to see and Moses steps in. He steps in once again and uses this really interesting phrase, fellow Hebrews. Moses knows that only togetherness, solidarity between the Hebrew people will be enough to resist the power of Pharaoh. But of course, that doesn't mean Moses ignores the truth, that that the truth that someone was wronged. Indeed, in a a kind of foreshadowing of Moses' later role as judge of the Israelites, Moses sees with justice and compassion, steps in, and still defends the victim. He addresses, quote, the one who was in the wrong. But then the story turns. Moses discovers his future is dim in Egypt. Moses will surely be a wanted man for daring to defend a Hebrew, let alone killing an Egyptian. He's in trouble. So Moses flees. Even so, Moses doesn't stop seeing or stepping in. This time he sees the daughters of the priest at the well where they are driven off by rowdy shepherds who steal the scarce water they've drawn. Moses sees with justice and compassion, enacts yet another reversal and drives off the shepherds, once again coming to the defense of those who are wronged. And Moses, after all this seeing and choosing, declares that he has indeed gotten himself into enough trouble to lose himself. Moses is still recognizable as an Egyptian. That's how, that's how the daughters at the well describe him in the closing scene to their father. Yet, yet Moses has choices. We always have choices. His passion for justice draws him beyond the comfort and privilege of his Egyptian palatial upbringing and into the ugliness of slavery, racism, and oppression. There he sees and he intervenes and in so doing, loses himself. He finds himself an alien He names his son, he names his son after this reality. He names him Gershom, which means something like an alien there. 
Moses is living in between, a kind of resident alien, someone who belongs to the moment, who resides in the opportunity to see and to choose, but is not at home in the way things are. Instead, on the way to something new, something more beautiful and blessed. Jesus knows this trouble. It's why he shares with his disciples that foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, too, had choices. And his choices, too, got him into trouble and turned him into a kind of resident alien. He belonged in the moment he was born for. He belonged to the moment God ordained and in which he ministered and healed and fed and loved, and yet he was not at home in the way things were. He was there to use his power and position as God's beloved, to usher in something more beautiful and blessed. And because of that, he was rejected and disdained. He became a feared outsider, literally taken outside the city to a dump heap and hung on a cross, crucified. It's no wonder the early church saw in Jesus a new Moses, someone who got into trouble, someone who emptied himself for others, someone who choose, who chose to see the pain and suffering of the world and then stepped in, becoming a kind of outsider who changed the world. Thanks for listening to the message this week. Visit southelkhorncc.org where you can download reflection and discussion guides to dig deeper into the weekly scripture and message.